welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, the first of 2023, it Ah, is 2023. 2023. In spite of what I continue to write in emails on documents and checks. You write checks? I do write checks. I have to pay for stuff. I have to No, no, no. Nobody, nobody, but my dad still writes checks and he writes checks. He writes so many checks. Well, I probably don't write that many checks, but it's, you know, a few days into the new year, I had to write my accountant a a check. You know, he does my taxes and he's old school. You didn't Venmo your accountant? Wendell is not going to take my Venmo. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I got to put ink to paper if I want to pay Wendell. Oh my gosh, Tom Board is psyched right now. And shout out to Tom Board. So yes, I write checks and I keep writing 2022, but it's not. It's 2023. (laughs) Uh, It's true. And you're allowed to still write checks. It's not. It wasn't banned. Right. It's not banned. No. It's not the, the, the. We do have a new Congress. They just set some new rules, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't it's involve. It's too soon. It's too soon ba- okay, to well, bring up that. Yeah, maybe it is. But we, we are going to have Nathan Schaefer from NHF's policy team on next month, so he yes. will bring us into the world of Congress yes. politics and advocacy. Looking pretty forward soon, to that. As am I. But that is for later. For today, we've got Jessica Lauren Richmond, and she is back to take us to and from. The well. The well. For a segment featuring five steps to make your New Year's resolutions stick. Oh, I need that one today. Yeah, well, hey, yes. you've come to the right place, Amy Board. Love it. That is today. It's coming up soon and will be followed by our interview with Aditi Kantapuli. She's a research collaborator for the CDC. She is a scientist, mm-hmm. physician, writer, and musician. How about that lineup? Yep, and yep. That's coming up a bit later. We have got all of that and more on this episode, first of the year. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and me here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and follow Bloodstream Media on social media. Or don't, but you know. We're there. If we you are want there. To. And we'd prefer if you did. I suggest it. It's a blast. <laughs> Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, Amy Board. <laughs> and they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be, you oh. can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. That's all I got to do. One more time, though, you probably don't need it. Bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say... Thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Clearly, I've had coffee this morning. <laughs> you have. I can see it in your Stop the Bleeding mug <laughs> right know. there. Shouts out, STB Hemo. I know. OMG. And hey, listen, thanks, Takeda, not just for this episode, but for 2023, because listeners, yes. Bloodstream Podcast is official in 2023. Yes! Takeda, that means you get us all year long. All year long, at least twice a month. At least twice a month. Uh, although you're going to hear about bonus episodes by the end of this episode. Uh, so we're already yeah. at one episode it's into the year. Happened. We're already into bonus episodes. But I know. thank you, Takeda, for your continued commitment to Bloodstream and the unique place that we have within the bleeding disorders community, which I think is only getting more and more important because Amy Board, too. as you know, on our very next episode, Jan 27th, What's we're going to have up? the one and only Dr. Stephen Pipe on uh. to talk about hemophilia B gene therapy, given that hemogenics has now been 
approved. So I think what we're doing here is as important as ever. Thank you, Takeda, for continuing to support it. And listeners, next week, Dr. Stephen Pipe is on to talk about hemogenics, hemophilia B, AAV gene therapy in an extended interview. You are not going to want to miss that. We also throughout the year are going to be previewing new segments. You've previously heard us talk with James Maple about the new music and story segment that we're working on. In fact, James and I were at an event this weekend talking to a couple of musicians who are going to contribute to that segment. If you're interested, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com for the new music segment. Uh, Amy and I are also talking about something for Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month. So listeners, you can look forward to all the stuff you've come to know Bloodstream for, you know, news interviews and informed opinionating, the Let's Talk segment and the Well, all the great stuff we do. And we're going to look to to preview and and pilot some new segments and some new things for you as well. So thank you for continuing to listen and commit to the show. If you weren't doing that, there'd be no reason for us to do this. There'd be no reason for Takeda to continue to support it. And I want to give a special shout out to some listeners who I did just meet at the Nacho Conference, the camp conference that took place in Arizona uh, earlier this month, actually just last week. Um, I was there and a few of you who were there came up to me and some of you I've never seen or met before but you wanted me to know that you're a listener and and you were very thankful for the information. So uh, thank you for saying that. Any of you who ever come up to Amy or I or anybody on the team yes. to let us know that you listen and that you appreciate or to give suggestions, criticism, feedback, anything like that's you engaging with the show, it means a tremendous amount. That's ultimately what all the effort's about. So those moments really fill my cup. And I just want to say thank you to those at Nacho who came up to say hi and thank you. And I hope I hear from more of you throughout the calendar year. And no one has ever said to me that there's too much Taylor Swift content content on this podcast Not and yet. i and i fish i'm like is there too much and mm. no one says it so uh, 2023 goals 2023 if you want to make that resolution full steam stick, ahead how to get people <laughs> finally asking you to rein it in you're gonna have to stick around to listen to the let's talk segment coming up in just a little bit but before we get into that we're actually not the let's talk segment the well segment shouts out to the let's talk segment as well though um actually on the let's talk segment i will mention because that dr pipe interview is an extended conversation yeah. about hemogenics, hemophilia B gene therapy. The Let's Talk segment that would run on that episode is actually going to be a standalone on February 3rd. So cool. you got a few episodes coming up in the next three, three, four weeks here from Bloodstream. Um, so we'll get into now The Well with Jessica Lauren Richmond talking about determining the boundaries between expectations and reality as it is a key for making sure you can stick to your resolutions and resolve. But Amy, first, just before the year came to an end, yeah. Congress ended for the year, and I promise I'm not going back to New Rules Congress <laughs> jokes from last week, but there was a legislative package that was yep. approved in the 11th hour or the 23rd hour or whatever hours, like right at the end. Um, and there were several wins, but also several disappointments in yep. that package for the rare disease community. So can you just, in like two, three minutes, just kind of walk us through what was that package and what are the wins and what are the losses? Right. As you guys know, um, we have such a strong advocacy community here in the hemophilia and bleeding disorder space. Um, these end of year legislative packages are usually budget, you know, uh, appropriations mm-hmm. um, packages that kind of like, you know, lump a whole bunch of stuff in there. And there were uh, several wins for the rare disease um, community that NORD and a coalition of their partners have kind of pushed through. It's notable that NHF um, and HFA were not a part of this coalition. Hmm. Um, But there were several things I think of note um, more for what was not included, which I think is interesting. But Hmm. as a part of this end end of year package, and if you guys are nerdy about this, this bill was HR 2617. So you can get nerdy about it. Um, We will put all of this 
information in the program notes if you guys want to kind of like read through because I know several of you guys like to read through. Love to read stuff. a good HR. Just, just a few. But what they did put through um, was to strengthen the FDA's um, accelerated approval pathway to ensure healthcare providers and insurance companies can continue to have confidence in drugs approved through this critical pathway. That's which good. I think That's is important. Um, they reauthorized several grants programs um, for orphan products, um, also Best Pharmaceuticals for Children's Act program, which is um, through NIH, which is great. And they also increased, which I think this is fantastic, they they have also, I don't know how they're going to do this, <laughs> Okay, but they, um, they voted to ensure increased representation of diverse and underserved populations in clinical trial programs supporting FDA approval of drugs and medical devices. My guess is it may be mandated with certain trial yeah. criteria yeah. that there is representation and diversity included in the patients enrolled in the trial. So I'm with you. I don't know how they're going to enforce it either. It seems important that it's at least on paper as a priority and something that in theory will be protected. It will be interesting to see how it's actually implemented and monitored. Exactly. Um, what they decided, uh, what Congress decided to not move forward with hmm. um, are several critical measures that I'm sure Nord and this coalition will continue to rally behind. And uh, these three measures I think are very interesting and something that um, we as a bleeding disorder community should be aware of. Okay. Um, the first is the Accelerating Kids Access to Care Act, which would have um, created an improved and streamlined provider enrollment process when children with Medicaid and or CHIP coverage need to access out-of-state medical care. Critical mm. for rare disease, yeah, ultra-rare sure. disease. Um, I think it's interesting here in the hemophilia community um, in terms of uh, now we have um, a hemophilia B gene therapy product um, on the market. Uh, Dr. Pipe is going to talk about this next week, but there mm. is a, you could be dosed at one center and then followed at another. How is that going to be facilitated, what paid for, for yeah, all exactly. of those things. So um, this, hmm. uh, and of course, gene therapy will not be for kids. This is specifically for kids right, on Medicaid right. and CHIP. However, yeah. it's it's interesting. So I think that's something interesting to follow. I'm curious about that too. Um, the next one is the Medical Nutrition Equity Act, oh. which would have lifted an enormous financial weight off the shoulders of people who depend on medically formulated foods by mandating insurance coverage of medical nutrition products for people with certain health conditions. Wow. And this is... Big, 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 big. And I think something it's going to be kind of like, again, one of those paradigm shifts in terms of what, you know, insurance, Medicaid, especially Medicaid and Medicare will pay for in terms of medically formulated foods, Food. which is just really important. And then the third, mm. which I think is absolutely critical, which blows my mind that they didn't um, move forward with this, is the New Board Screening Saves Lives Reauthorization Act. Uh -oh. So this would have provided resources to improve the state programs that already exist, but it would improve those programs that screen newborns for a complete panel of disorders and educate parents and providers about those disorders. Yeah. Unfortunately, funding was included for the National Academy of Medicine to conduct a study and to make recommendations on ways to modernize and improve newborn screening. So hopefully, um, mm. you know, the funding for that study will help move that along. But um, as we know from our friends and our peers in the rare and ultra rare community, those newborn screenings are something that they have advocated for for decades. Our friends at the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, I'm sure, are not pleased yes. with this result. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to keep an 
eye on that, keep an eye on that study of how to make, how to modernize and improve newborn screenings. But right. it's interesting that they didn't just, you know, um, put money to improve those programs. So hmm. that's something to look forward to. And of course, uh, a great place to keep um, updated on all this stuff, Rare, is to follow Nord um, on their social media and um, their news. And I'm sure they have a newsletter and things. Yeah. But that organization is fantastic. Yeah, so, I think that's where I first saw information about this as well. Yeah. I'd be curious, why do you think it is that NHF and HFA weren't a part of this? I am curious as well. We've, we, You and I had a back and forth about it, which I think is interesting. And I think we should ask uh, Nathan or yeah. our policy folks um, at NHF and HFA when they join us here. We're getting geared up um, community for Washington Days, which will be in person yeah, in March, be... which is cool. So like advocacy is starting. Statehouse Days are getting up and running. Um, what a interesting year I think it will be. I think it's going to be kind of a a more difficult year to get things through, but in mm. terms of our critical funding for our treatment centers and things like that, it will be an important year for us to show up. So um, we will have those people on Bloodstream here um, in the next few weeks. And I said we ask. I think that's a good idea. Uh, March 8th through the 10th is the National Hemophilia Foundation's Washington Day is the day of federal lobbying. Notable in 2022, a record close to 400 attendees from 45 states and Puerto Rico gathered virtually for the community advocacy event. It was virtual the last three years as a result of COVID. It will be interesting to see now that it is in person again, what does that mean for the number of people that showed up? Listeners have heard me say this before, but I think many of us can you know, identify that last time we were on a plane or that last big group event that we were a part of in quarter one of 2020 before COVID changed everything. And for me, it was Washington days. That was yeah. my last trip before COVID. It's an interesting moment in time coming up upon the 2023 Washington days to think about the last few years. But just from an engagement standpoint, I'll be curious what the overall numbers are. And to your point, Amy, when we talk to Nathan as we get closer to Washington days and learn about what are the priorities that NHF has set forward for the community uh, during those days to learn a little bit more about, hey, this big thing that went and was important for rare disease and there's a lot of... In some stuff went, some stuff didn't go. Yeah. NHF, HFA weren't participating. Why? I'm sure there's reason. I just don't yeah. know what it is. So yeah. cool. Thanks for running through that with us. That was a really helpful, interesting context for, for sure. some stuff that may have flown under the radar as it was, you know, the uh, 11th hour, the 23rd hour of the 57, whatever hours yeah. just before the end. Uh, so thanks, Amy Board. Okay, The Well with Jessica Lauren Richmond. You want to stick to your New Year's resolutions? Oh, I do. I do. She is going to help us do that. She's got a five-step guide that are going to help us be our best selves this year. No pressure, Jessica Lauren Richmond, but that's what we're setting you up to deliver today on The Well. I think for me, when, I, when I'm offered a new opportunity, I really, I, I try to jump at it as, as much as possible, but I gotta be realistic. You know, I do have a bleeding disorder and I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna live for a, a long time, so I wanna really be smart about how I approach any, any new activity. It is January 2023 at The Well, and we are going to discuss resolve, resolution, Determination to completion. Acceptance. By definition, resolve is to find a solution to a dispute or problem, or to decide firmly on a course of action. 
With the new year here, and with sobering traditions like the turning of the calendar to a new business quarter, or the dry January, a.k.a. alcohol-free living of those who generally prefer to imbibe, it's a time to recenter on beginnings, on new habits. A great time to create new boundaries between expectation and reality. Welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. Maybe you're resolved to create a new world for yourself, one where your health and fitness are in the lead, one where you stress less about the small shiza. Perhaps you're aiming to let go of a bad habit, an unhelpful dependency, quit smoking or sugar. Maybe you're starting a new venture, tackling a big project with a hard-line due date. Whatever you're doing this year that's new for you, dealing with limitations of reality requires some amount of strategy. Today at The Well, for your consideration, a five-step guide to successful resolutions. To help illustrate the steps, we are listening to Corey, who was recorded at HFA 2022. He shares about his resolve to take opportunity. Something I, I talked about earlier was uh, climbing a mountain um, to, to go to a, a friend's wedding recently. And that was certainly a kind of a scary and daunting uh, proposition, but uh, I know that through my own sort of preparation and training and over the, the, the past couple of years that I, I thought that was something I could do. Preparation to attempt something new requires the decision to do the thing. Corey had done his risk analysis and consideration for the opportunity. We'll note here the simplicity of what step one is for successful resolutions. Step one, be resolved. Then what? I knew that there was going to be a good support team around me, just in, in my friends being there. There was about 20, 25 people that, that went up the mountain that day. And everybody knew I had a bleeding disorder and they knew, knew the, um, the reality that I, you know, something possibly could happen, but, but everybody had my back in that moment. Aha, step two. Acknowledgement of contexts that may challenge your resolve and matching those challenges with support. In Corey's case, a surrounding group of informed individuals. I think whenever I'm doing something, I, I try to not do it alone. I think that's a, a really important thing to, to remember when doing any, any kind of new scary activity is if you, if, you, if you go at it alone, there's a lot that can go wrong. Um, but, uh, but if you have other people around you who, who know your situation and who can, who can lift you up if you're, if you're uh, sliding down a little bit, that's super important. Step three, and this can be a tricky one depending on the activity, not doing it alone. Well, not doing all of it alone. The resolution that comes first in our step-by-step -step guide here, that is a solo activity of the brain. And step two, acknowledging challenges may be done alone. But at some point, letting others share in the knowledge of what you are resolved to do, that is a part of bringing a resolution into reality. Of course, to share something, one must first know one's own brain, one's own body, whole self, really. Right, Corey? I think the other key part about trying new things is really understanding yourself and what you're capable of. You have to be realistic and, and know your own body and what you're, what you're capable of. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people with bleeding disorders probably don't get um, as much experience um, in terms of their limits. 
in certain in certain ways. In, in other ways, they, they know their limits far better than probably anybody else on this planet, but but not in every way. And I, I think without without trying some of these new activities and taking baby steps towards them, um, it's really hard to know what your limits are. So we had step four, know thyself, and rounding us out is step five, knowing your limits. Now this is different than acknowledging challenges that might need support, step two. This step five, it's what makes resolve peaceful. Limitations are not there to constrain possibilities. They're there to help clarify reality. So when considering the new year and what you may be resolved to do, we're shouting out a reminder from the well. You can do whatever you want as long as you negotiate with the way things are to get there. And in this way, limitations can help shape opportunity. Next time at the well, we'll dive a bit deeper into how else limitations can be freeing. Thanks to Corey for support creating this five-step recipe for Resolve. Thanks to Bloodstream Media for having me on. This is Jessica, and I wish you well. Thank you, Jessica Lauren Richmond, as always, for um, your wisdom and grace. Wisdom and grace. When talking about New Year's resolutions. Wisdom and grace. Listeners, let's get to my interview with Aditi Katapuli. She is a scientist. She is a physician. She has an interest in art and music. She is all of the things. I love it. And we talk about all the things. We talk about health equity. We talk about how the pain crisis is different for people with color and how art mm. and music offer healing. It's good. Let's get into it. Let's get it. Listeners, I am so excited for you to hear our next guest. She has the best background, I think, of any guest we've had this year on Bloodstream. Over the last 15 years, Aditi has been working with families affected by a rare genetic condition, initially as a scientist and now as a physician. But the coolest thing, apart from being a scientist, she is also a writer and a musician. What a wonderful guest we have today. Aditi, tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you arrive at where you are today? Thank you so much for that incredible bio. So I got interested in genetics at a very young age. The idea of genes and how they're so microscopic and we can't even see them to the eye, but it can have such an incredible macro impact blew my mind. I was mm. like 10 years old at that realization. And I just ended up following that curiosity and then staying in this space because I loved it. So that's how I found myself here. When I was in graduate school at Hopkins, I was listening to a lot of lectures, not by professors or you know specialists in the rare disease space, but they were working on health disparities in a different lens. And those talks were extremely inspiring. And the dean of my graduate school, he said, a physician can help hundreds of families over a lifetime, but people in public health, they impact millions. And so I want to carry that philosophy forward as a physician, and that kind of always stuck with me. So here I am. You do a lot of work in health equity. Mm -hmm. And so just to ask a basic question, yeah. define it a little bit. What is health equity? Health equity is really meeting people where they are and what their circumstances are, and how do we access health in a way that is going to provide them with the best mental, emotional, physical well-being with their circumstances. Mm -hmm. So if I could give you an example, let's say we are at a playground and the teacher has two band-aids and I have a bigger scab. 
So it's equitable to give us both two Band-Aids, even if you don't have a Band-Aid, and that just would make things equal. But is it really right if I have the bigger scab and you don't have a scab for you to get a Band-Aid? So that's what it is. It like really boils down to meeting people in the circumstances that they're in and guaranteeing the right to health. Talk a little bit about your work in health equity. What are you doing? What are the national conversations? Like what is going on now today here in the States? One big thing is I think the legislation and provide like the insurance providers and how different providers have different policies and different states have different legislations. I know of parents that are moving states just to have better care for their medically complex child. They have to uproot their life. Yes. Because that state has better coverage. Like we are called the United States of America, but are we really united when different states have different ways about providing health to the citizens? So that's one big thing that I'm hearing from families. And I just don't think that's equitable health when we can't be all uniform on the same page about health. It's such a basic necessity. Why is it this complicated? <laughs> right. Why do we have, why do insurance providers have different rules? And as a physician, it's just it's a hard system to navigate. And I think it's equally hard for families as well to navigate the medical system. So really trying to advocate and push for this idea that it's a partnership. It's a partnership between the provider and the patient. We need to hear from you to give you the best healthcare that you need. Even if you feel like, oh, like I'm taking up too much time or space. No, you're never taking up too much time or space. Like we're here to listen. From your perspective as a provider, tell me a little bit, how is the pain crisis in rare genetic conditions like hemophilia, for example, different for people of color? That's a really good question that you bring up. And I'm reminded by one interaction we had in the hospital of a patient. He had sickle cell and it was me, my attending, a resident, and we went in and generally what happens is we go into the room, the doctor assesses the patient, we watch our attending. He was wincing with a lot of pain. Like it was quite evident that he was having a pain crisis. So as soon as we come out of the room, we have short clinical debrief. And I remember my attending said, he's just faking it. This was a person of African-American origin, young man, like 21. And that's what he had to say. I kind of grappled with it because where I am in the hierarchy, I can't question my attending. I can't say no, but I think he's in a lot of pain because whatever the attending says with their experience is what goes in the management. I recently came across a study where it said they did a survey of healthcare providers and 50% of the people that they surveyed had said that they were of this notion that Black people had less sensitive nerves, less sensitive nerves. So they were under prescribing for pain or it's these biases that are percolating in the medical circles in terms of how we are providing care to people of color and minorities. And I've seen it myself and I, I didn't, I couldn't question it. But then when I read studies like this that are coming out in literature, it's so validating to know like, okay, this is the perception that the attending might've had. It's tough to see this. It's tough to speak up. But now I'm more vocal about these things because as I'm reading the literature and people are seeing these perceptions that are true, 
that it's not just me and it's not just in my head. It's like, these are facts that we are faced to reconcile with. We hear stories like that from our sickle cell warriors here on the network all the time. It's an issue that they face all the time. As a provider, what guidance can you give to patients in that situation dealing with medical staff? Is there anything that you would give a bit of guidance for patients as they face those barriers to care? The medical care team is not just composed of the physician. Mm-hmm. It's the nurse. You have multidisciplinary care, especially when you're on an inpatient admission. Right. So there's different contact points of interacting with your medical care team. So making sure that if you are in pain, like everyone on that medical care team knows that the nurse that comes to see you, the nutritionist that comes to see you, you know, the OT, PT, whatever your situation is, but there are multiple people on that team. So if you're not being heard by one person, please express this to somebody else that may be able to like counter check the physician. If you can't get your message through to one person, the most obvious solution is to tell someone else. And hopefully they're there to listen. Like we do want the best care for you. That's what our job is and to deliver the best care. So that would be my advice is to being assertive and making sure that the whole medical team is aware of your needs. And it's not just the prescribing physician. Different physicians come in at different points, like treating physicians. It's not just one physician that's consistent on that one stay. And when that new physician comes in, they don't really know what's going on, like what happened the past couple of days, the, the five days that you were having these pain crises. So keeping your own notes, I think would be really helpful to show them. I know it's documented in the chart as providers, we document things, but also if you have a book and then you write down, okay, this is the time, this is the pain level that I had, and you show it to the physician, you have something objective to go by. I actually saw a Twitter thread a while ago from a rare disease patient, but this was specifically dealing with her chronic pain and her migraine pain, she had a book, like a diary book of everything that she had been prescribed and like all of her records and all the things. And every time she went to the ER, she showed this book and it like immediately, it it streamlined because it was like, she's not making this up. I thought it was brilliant. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, yeah, that's, that is great advice. Every point that you interact with a healthcare provider, not just a physician. I'm talking about the medical team. Have that documented. Right. So it doesn't get lost in transition. Speaking of transition, let's transition a little bit. Tell me how you use art and music in your professional life and how this helps patients. I'm fascinated by this. Yeah. So the art and music, my first project with art started, I went to India and for a Fulbright to study rare genetic conditions. And every state of India, I met a family with a rare disease. And one of the most striking families, striking stories that I, of a father that I met with was a father who six of his eight children were diagnosed with a rare neurological condition. And he petitioned the government of India to euthanize his children because he wasn't able to care for them. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I'm just kind of shocked. What happened? It wasn't accepted. He was really just trying to bring attention that he needed the support and resources to really care for his kids. And like he had to go to that extreme to get 
people to notice what his struggle was. And that's how I interpreted his actions. He was in dire need, like he didn't know what to do. And he thought, he, and it did work. It was being covered by all media, top media. It did bring the attention that it needed, but that really pushed me to share all the stories of the families that I've met. I think one thing in the rare disease space is it's hard to get people to, especially if you don't have a rare condition, to really understand what's going on in the rare community. And like getting the attention of someone to care about rare is even harder. So I think that's where art comes in. Art's like a universal connector. Yeah. It can elicit certain emotions that can't be expressed in the written word. We can think of new ways about even thinking of things when we look at art. Yeah. So that's where the inspiration for my first children's book came out called The Zebra Alphabet. And what's universal? The alphabet, right? A lot of people are learning the English language. And so to introduce this concept, rare diseases along with the alphabet are like to marriage these very heart-wrenching stories, but to present it in a different way, in a different light, because that's what we need. We need hope. We need light in a very dark right. space. So That's fantastic. What was the title again? The Zebra Alphabet? Yeah, Zebra Alphabet. That's fantastic. And where can listeners find out about that book and try to get it for their own? You can contact me directly on Instagram, thezebraalphabet.com. <laughs> fantastic. Thezebraalphabet.com. We'll have that in the program notes. Oh, Didi, I love that. Last question as we kind of wind down. Tell me a little bit about how social interactions can modulate inflammation in our bodies. And I'm fascinated about this question. I'm fascinated with inflammation. But just how can some of that social interaction really help that? We know that inflammation is a driver of disease. It can make pre-existing conditions worse, mm. or it can even trigger new diseases to appear. So my own thought process around this is that if we can build stronger connections with our local community, either physically or virtually, that can be used as a buffer to sort of drive these inflammatory levels down. And that's what I mean by social immunity. And it's not a term that I came up with. This was a term that was actually derived by ecologists in 2007. And when they were, they initially, like one example was that they had used is bees in a hive. They're all working together in cooperativity and they actually collect resin from outside and they bring it in to the beehive because that acts as an antimicrobial substance. And so if we think about like on, on an evolutionary perspective, animals, bees, humans too, there is a push for being cooperative in our own community and building those connections. I think we're evolutionary programmed for that. I think that's where it fits in terms of building a social immunity means building connection so we can drive the levels of inflammation down. Well, Didi, thank you so much for joining me today. This was wonderful. Again, where can our listeners follow you? You mentioned your Instagram. Is there anywhere else where we can follow your work? I just uh, I have Instagram for now. <laughs> yeah, feel free to send me a message or anything. Like, I'm always open to hearing about other people's experiences. And again, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That Instagram handle will be in the program notes. And Aditi, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Amy. Thank you, Jessica, for bringing us to and from the well. We will do our best to follow your guide <laughs> and stick to our resolutions for 
37 years now, it's been more challenging than I'd like to admit. But maybe this is the year yeah. that my New Year's resolution make it to February. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Aditi, as well, for contributing to today's episode. And the episode that would not be possible, of course, without our presenting sponsor's continued commitment, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. Visit bleedingdisorders.com wherever on your journey you may be. And as mentioned earlier, our next episode features Dr. Stephen Pipe talking about yes. hemophilia B gene therapy, the approval of hemogenics, what to think about, what to talk to your doctor about, what his takeaways from the clinical trial were, what the 30 years that he mm -hmm. and others have been working on this means in this moment. Amy, remind listeners when they can hear all that great stuff. January 27th. Oh, mark your calendars because it's a wonderful conversation. It's an extended conversation with Dr. Pipe, and he's always wonderful. He's a terrific listen, and we just actually had that interview today, so we're not making it up. No, you yeah, we know that. It's very good. We actually know it's great. No, but it's something of particular interest and importance, especially yeah. for hemophilia A patients as well, as we will continue to have those conversations for the hemophilia A community throughout the year. So it's super timely, um, and it's wonderful, and it's going to be the bulk of that episode. So please check it out, January 27th. And also our Let's Talk segment with the legendary That's Joshua right. Sterling Bragg. Great beard. He does have a phenomenal beard. Um, that will go live as a standalone episode, or pop-up bonus episode, whatever. Yeah, pop-up bonus, standalone. Which know. PJ loves. He loves a pop-up. I love a good pop-up. He I loves love. it. The moment we set our schedule for the year and then have approval for that schedule yeah. from our presenting sponsor's commitment yeah. is the moment I like to start throwing in some pop-up bonus episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's a thing that happens every year. Anyway, that will be February 3rd. Five weeks in, we're already getting to those pop-ups. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know you're a part of Bloodstream when, when you're doing bonus episodes all the time. Anyway, right. so yeah, back on the 27th, Dr. Pipe. Then on the 3rd, we got the Let's Talk. Subscribe, listen, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anybody you want. Do all those things. <laughs> and with that, that is all for this episode. As always, remember to subscribe, listen, and share episodes of the Bloodstream podcast with friends, family, colleagues. If you or a loved one in the Bleeding Disorders community is a musician and you'd like to share your songs and story of those songs for a new segment on the pod, email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for our podcast or Believe Limited's films. So you can email us and say, I have a story. Do you want to hear it? And you'll get to talk with me. <laughs> Most likely you will. That's true. With me. And we can just uh, see where you'd be a great fit. So please do that. We're always casting something. You can connect with us on Bloodstream Media, on the social media, all the things. Me, of course, Patrick James Lynch, everywhere. We're literally everywhere except for a few things. <laughs> literally everywhere except for a few things. <laughs> I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your other host, Amy Borg. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.